0: The California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation is having lots of trouble attracting and keeping psychiatrists on its staff. Some 40% of the state psychiatry jobs are unfilled, including those at the state's prisons and psychiatric facilities. In 2018, the rate of openings was 28% if one accounts for contract psychiatrists, including those who treat patients by telepsychiatry video conferences. To entice psychiatrists, the Department of Corrections is offering them an annual salary of $300,000 plus government benefits, but money isn't the only problem. The working conditions are also an issue. Currently, prison employees with far less medical training can override a psychiatrist's treatment choices. The Department of Corrections has attempted to fill the full-time vacancies with psychiatrists working part-time on contract, but they're much more expensive. The need for psychiatrists in California prisons is dire. Last year, suicides in California prisons reached an all-time high, with 38 documented.
1: For months, it's been unclear whether incarcerated people in the U.S. were eligible to receive the $1,200 checks that are part of the CARES Act the law that provides financial relief from the economic toll of COVID-19. However, recently, US District Judge Phyllis Hamilton ruled that the order to exclude incarcerated people was arbitrary and capricious. Judge Hamilton was responding to a class action suit filed on behalf of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people. She didn't find anything in the act that prevented people in jails and prisons from receiving the relief funds and devised detailed orders for the IRS to ensure that people entitled to the funds would have correct information. Originally, the IRS was sending checks to incarcerated people, but ceased doing so in May. The agency then enacted an internal policy banning payments to incarcerated people and demanded that those who had already received the funds return them. The agency also declared that incarcerated people seeking the checks could be committing fraud. Judge Hamilton disagreed and extended the time for incarcerated people to file for the money moving an initial October 30th deadline to November 4th.
0: This week, we're talking about youth and detention. We haven't spoken much about this topic on KiteLine, and frankly, it's partially due to my own experiences being locked up in Indiana at the age of 15. Youth imprisonment is a difficult topic, and we've never really known how to address the subject with the care it deserves, and it certainly won't fit in one episode. So now, we're laying the groundwork to talk to current prisoners who were placed in facilities young and who are still locked up to this day, and how the impact of incarceration since childhood has shaped them into their adulthood. I can say that, from my own experiences, many of the scenes described in both of the segments in today's episode ring true, often touted as therapy or a last resort for incorrigible youth. I witnessed and was subjected to numerous violations by staff at my facility. These often were worse than the abuse of home lives many of us were supposedly being rescued from. We start with an impassioned piece by a contributor reflecting on the recent deaths of adolescents in two different states, Cornelius Frederick's death at a youth facility in Michigan and Janiah McMillan in Kentucky. And we follow with a conversation I had with Heather Doust, who's incarcerated in California. She's been inside since she was a teen, and talks about navigating the terrain inside from a young age. We'd like to issue a content warning regarding violence against children, self-harm, and abuse.
2: Some people call them boarding schools. Others would consider them medium to minimum security prisons. They are often heavily surveilled with armed security and cameras, with limited access and communication outside the campus, enforced daily schedules, intense emotional neglect, often keeping kids in isolation, feeding them horrible food while siphoning money from the state or family's pockets. It's not uncommon for kids held hostage inside these facilities to develop traumas related to neglect. Severe health issues, major depression, and reduced self-worth and sometimes dying by either excessive force used by staff or through health complications like a diabetic coma. Often these boarding schools claim that they will influence a child to go down the right path, but really they are just depriving them of the most essential needs to have a healthy life while neglecting and abusing them. Lakeside Academy is a privately operated youth facility owned by Sequel Youth Services in Kalamazoo, Michigan. They advertise as a training school for troubled youth. At the time of the incident, the facility housed 125 boys, approximately half of them from Michigan. The incident that follows is not the first complaint involving violence toward the youth by staff. Cornelius was in Lakeside's foster care program after his mother died in her sleep and his dad was unable to take care of him. Cornelius died May 1, 2020, after suffering a heart attack. Witnesses say that during lunch, Cornelius threw a sandwich on the floor. Then four adult staff members proceeded to restrain him. They tackled him to the ground, kneeling on his back, pushing his face into the floor. Cornelius screamed repeatedly, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, before he went unconscious and into labored breathing, after the staff member had been kneeling on his chest for ten minutes. He later died at the hospital. The state revoked its contract. With Lakeside Academy shortly after the murder and the youth were placed elsewhere. Prior to Cornelius' death, Lakeside had at least 30 violations that were under investigation through the MDHHS all involving improper use of de-escalation techniques. The same staff who murdered Cornelius had been written up six other violations of violence against youth since the beginning of 2020 The staff waited a full 12 minutes to call an ambulance after Cornelius went unconscious, and it was later determined that Frederick had also had COVID-19. Following the announcement of Cornelius' death, 25 to 28 students escaped the facility on May 1st. Two bikes and one canoe were stolen from the facility. One boy ran to a nearby neighbor's, screaming and crying for his life after witnessing the murder of Cornelius. The students began to rebel, expressing their grief and rage until tear gas was deployed. The Michigan Department of Health and Human Services has began the process to revoke Lakeside Academy's license to operate following an investigation into the facility. The MDHHS determined that the staff's response to Cornelius Frederick's throwing a sandwich on the floor was significantly disproportionate to his behavior. When should murder of a child ever be an acceptable response? The MDHHS investigation of Lakeside Academy found 10 violations of child care institution licensing requirements. They also found that the staff had restrained Cornelius in an unsafe manner on January 4th, with restraints lasting more than 30 minutes and was not a proportionate response for the severity of his behavior. On June 20th, groups of protesters held a demonstration outside Lakeside Academy, calling for an end to for-profit facilities across the country. After the demonstration at Lakeside, the group also caravanned outside the Kalamazoo County Juvenile Home. On any given day, 48,000 youth in the United States are confined in facilities away from home as a result of juvenile justice or criminal justice involvement. Most are held in restrictive correctional styles and thousands are held without even having had a trial. While 14% of all youth under 18 in the U.S. are black, 42% of boys and 35% of girls in juvenile facilities are black. American Indians make up 3% of the girls and 1.5% of the boys in juvenile facilities, despite comprising less than 1% of all youth nationally and black youth are disproportionately transferred from youth prisons to adult prisons. As of 2016, confined youth were held in 1,772 juvenile facilities, including 662 detention centers, 131 shelters, 58 reception diagnostic centers, 344 group homes, 30 ranch wilderness camps, 189 long-term secure facilities, and 678 residential treatment centers. And about 60,000 youth under the age of 18 are incarcerated in juvenile detention centers. The number would be even higher if we counted the residential treatment centers like Lakeside or other juveniles facilities. Evidence shows that large conventional juvenile correction facilities, or plainly stated youth prisons, are inherently prone to abuse. Given the pervasiveness of problems with juvenile detention centers in all regions of the country, it's difficult to argue that confinement in these kinds of institutions offers a safe approach for rehabilitating youth. Police, correctional officers, security guards, staff members that work for juvenile justice systems are all capable of extreme violence. Often their training is not in conflict resolution. They're trained to harm, subdue, punish, and imprison. They're not trauma-informed, nor are they qualified to take care of children. These facilities are often understaffed, overpopulated, and funding is often disproportionately being funneled into the pockets of administration and not into improvements, though no amount of funding could ever improve or make these facilities necessary or a place of healing. Janiah McMillan was a 16-year-old living at Louisville Mayhurst Facility, the state's oldest child welfare agency, whose programs include residential treatment, two community-based therapeutic group homes, and foster care. Janiah and her mom had undergone counseling sessions with Mayhurst staff. Things seemed to be improving, and she was about to be released and return home to be with family. On January 10, 2016, Janiyah was home visiting with her mother when they got into a pretty horrendous conflict. Her mom called 911 and claimed Janiyah pulled her hair, but you can hear her mother saying really horrible things to her daughter and that a man was physically restraining Janiyah. When the cops showed up, they arrested Janiyah and brought her to the Lincoln Village Juvenile Detention Center. Only 17 hours into her first day ever spent in a juvenile detention facility, she took her last breaths. The prison staff claimed that she died in her sleep, but the lawsuit seems to challenge that narrative as video evidence proves otherwise. Upon her arrival, Janaya refused to remove her sweatshirt in order to be searched by detention staffers. Minutes later, four staffers used an Akito control technique restraint to remove the shirt. She was then thrown into a cold isolation cell with no mattress plaid or blankets. Six hours later, a guard on duty was seen peering into her isolation room window after hearing Janiyah coughing. Janiyah was later found to have inherited a long QT syndrome, a rare genetic disorder that can cause irregular heartbeat. Even so, if the guards had checked on her sooner, they would have recognized that she was in danger when she began to cough and choke. Instead, they stood idly by and watched Janiyah take her last breaths. Lincoln Village Regional Detention Center in Hardin County, Kentucky, has since been shut down, likely due to public outcry and Janaya's family a civil lawsuit against the Department of Juvenile Justice and several employees, including Holt and Winham, who sat idle as Janiah died and pleaded guilty to official misconduct. Both Holt and Winham were sentenced to pay a small fine of $200 plus court fees. We hear these stories every day. Holt and Winham are off the hook since they only had to pay $200 for participating in taking someone's life. They will not suffer any further punishment, and there's little reason to believe they will feel accountable for the killing. They will not be haunted by what they did. The question is, why are these adults so afraid of unarmed children that they feel justified to harm and even murder them? Most of these murders are of black people and rooted in anti-blackness, a prescribed terror, a learned fear that has been created by colonialism, by whiteness, domination, patriarchy, and it's a terror, a genocide, that will not be solved by reforms or simply defunding the police and prisons. That's certainly a start, but we need to abolish these institutions that choose who will die and who will live, who will live freely and who will live in constant threat of incarceration, all in the name of power, domination, and comfort. Toni Morrison puts it poignantly, If you can only be tall because somebody is on their knees, then you have a serious problem, she concluded. My feeling is that white people have a very, very serious problem, and they should start thinking about what they can do about it. Take me out of it.
3: I can tell you about all the different kinds of places. There's different facilities for different ages, and I've been pretty much everywhere. The facility where I did my hardest time, though, is closed down. Like, they don't have, um, it's not there anymore. So, YA, I think now, the Youth Authority, is now the Division of Juvenile Justice, and it's male-only. It's no longer co-ed because I'm, um, it was 25-year-old men with 12-year-old girls running the politics. These men are in and out of prison, but they're serving juvenile sentences, so they're running the whole juvenile prison. It's just different. Like, um, when you go to juvenile hall, okay, you go there. It's built like, the... Um, scare program so you go in they try to scare you they turn your life around you're supposed to leave in 30 days and be scared to come back to prison or jail basically so it's hard time so what they do you wake up at like four o'clock in the morning and they make you run until six they make you go to school they make you go to programs you exercise it's like boot camp military style you don't speak unless spoken to it's meant to shock you so that you don't re-offend as a juvenile however it's not designed for long term so I ended up staying there for two years, which can be pretty traumatizing because you only speak when you're spoken to. You, um, it's military-based, so I marched everywhere. So by the time I got sentenced, I moved over to YA. When I got to YA, it's no longer a facility, but pretty much all rules are out the rule book, like, are out the window. It's, like, it's crazy. You can't staff fight you. The staff break the cameras, like, it was just a really dirty prison. Like, a lot of stuff went on there. People got really hurt. It was a lot of gang violence. It was very, um, it was like a male prison, basically, because it was run by the men. So it was a men's prison, but there was a lot of pregnancies, so that's how it eventually closed down. And then going from that, no structure, from total structure to no structure to prison, which is kind of like in between. You come to prison, you have freedom, but there's this book, the Title 15, that tells you the rules. If you break these rules, you get more time, you get penalties. But it's different because, like, where I was doing time, there was no such thing as shoe, which would be the secure housing unit. Basically, they lock you down in a cell for 24 hours a day. You get out three times a week. You shower every other day. So they have that in adult prisons. They don't have that on juvenile side. So I kind of glossed over what happened when I came to adult prison. Basically, I was doing the same things I was doing in CYA, which is like always trying to defend myself, not letting people disrespect me. These are all very uh, male-based ethics for the uh, prison. I was running my program like a male prisoner, but coming to the women's prison, it was completely different. So I was very defensive, so I ended up getting in a lot of trouble. I ended up doing about two years in the segregated housing unit. And um, I ended up going to the asylum for a while. That was another year and a half. So basically out of my first five years, I only really walked free for about six months. 17 through 22, I couldn't really understand why I kept getting locked up because I was doing the same things I was doing in the California Youth Authority. However, they were completely locking me down, and I couldn't understand the difference because, you know, you have to realize when you're a kid and you don't get consequences for something and you keep doing it somewhere else and you get consequences, it takes a while to really understand. Because, like, in CYA, a cop will take off their belt and fight you, and that's just what happens. That's part of life that's just a part of survival like it's not like where there's rules and regulations it's a survival mode so I came to prison on survival mode however the woman's prison is not like that it's not a survival mode and it's not prison gang based it's not ran like a men's prison it's very every woman for themselves they're all about their children respect for families and stuff so I came here kind of you know this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded trained by older men 25 year old men had trained me since i was about um 16 through 17 18 they had pretty much brainwashed me on how i was supposed to do my prison time i came to adult prison and um it was completely different so i ended up getting in trouble for about five years but then they were over medicating me so they were giving me these shots of um xyprexa to calm me down when i was about 22 i started getting these chest pains um they said i was crazy that i was having panic attacks within six months i had heart failure and got a pacemaker so that changed my life and then i was in county jail i actually got set up by a cop who said i assaulted him but i didn't and that was the last time i got in trouble because i got scared because i saw that they really had the power to say that you do anything so i went out to court and um, when I was out to court, my best friend killed herself, and I saw it. And when I came back, it was like a domino effect. People were killing themselves left and right, and um, it was hard. It was hard. I was losing friends, um, and then I was battling my own me- medical, so it just slowed me down. So it was a complete life changer. Me getting sick and losing so many people, you know, just to they gave up you know so many i saw juvenile lifers just hanging themselves because they just thought they were never getting out because lifers weren't getting out and then SB 260 passed and that was the first law for the 14 year old that gave us a youth offender hearing so i got a little bit of hope and i just hoped that maybe something would happen where i would get out early so i uh i changed my ways i just started praying i started going to church Um, I stayed in my room where I didn't talk to people as much. And eventually, you know, change shows, and it builds up. And now I haven't had a write-up since I was about 22. I'm 27 now, so it's five years. I think what just happened is I realized that I had spent my whole childhood trying to get my way. And it's not about my way. It's about the right way. So me fighting because someone disrespected me isn't gonna take back that they disrespected me, it's gonna make them hate me more. So it's really just solving issues in a more mature adult way. I realized I was getting nowhere with the violence, with the with the defensiveness, with the attitude. I was getting nowhere. I was just getting slammed back in shoe. I was getting new cases. I was just and then seeing my friend die like that, it really messed me up. They messed me up. And then I came back and other people started killing tell- This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. It made me want to live. And me wanting to live, I was suicidal as a kid. So that's kind of how I ended up here. I told my dad immediately after my crime, before they even picked me up in the cop car, I said, please kill me. Please just kill me. And he wouldn't. And I was suicidal all my childhood. I was in and out of hospitals. And at the point where I had to really get down to, I have to survive. I want to survive this. That's when I changed my mind, and I grew up.
0: Yeah, and can you talk a little bit about your relationship with your family? You know, then and now. Honestly, it's strained
3: with my family, except for really with my father. My father is a great support system. Uh, I don't speak any well them my family. Actually, I've tried to reach out. I try to apologize. I think part of the problem is that after I committed my crime, I kind of had a weird shock where I couldn't understand what I did or why I did it. And people wanted answers. And I didn't have those answers. I didn't understand. It was too big. I didn't grasp the tragedy or the pain that I caused, the you know the domino effect, and just that it reached out and devastated more lives than just my mother, who I loved, who passed away. But it affected my whole family. I didn't grasp that yet. I was still a kid. I couldn't give those answers. And I think by the time I could, I was about 22, and everybody had just gave up on me, and they didn't want to hear from me anymore, except for my dad. Yes, my dad, um, he visited until COVID hit about once a month. I call him. We stay in touch. I think it's because we both are very, um, like, spiritual so like, and very Christian-oriented, me and him are both we have a different kind of thought on things like we both have forgiveness like I have this um tattoo on me that says be gentle and ready to forgive never hold grudges remember the Lord forgave you so you must forgive others and that's Colossians 3 13 I have that on me so me and my dad are just really big on forgiveness because we just feel that's what we have to do you can't just stay angry forever but the thing is, people have the right to be mad at me, and they have the right to hold a grudge, and I don't hold that against them. But my dad has chosen a different route of coping with things. I think that when people hear my story, it's really just, it's a tragic story, and a lot of things that shouldn't have happened, a lot of mistakes. Yeah, it's just a lot of mistakes, and um, terrible mistakes. And when it comes down to it, you, sometimes... One decision can change your life forever. It doesn't matter how young you are, how old you are. You do something, and you cannot take it back. And it doesn't matter how sorry you are. It doesn't matter how much you beg for forgiveness. You can't erase what you've done in the past. But what you do have control over is the present and the future. And when I did my 12 steps, I chose instead of doing direct amends to do what's called A living event, if you're familiar with the trial steps, it's for Alcoholics Anonymous. I was drinking the day of my crime. And as a living event, every single day, I pray to my mother and I ask her for forgiveness. And I do things in my daily life that I know will make her proud. You know, I don't do things that go against where I came from or the values I was raised with. The good times. You know, my family was not perfect. No family is perfect. However... It's about learning and growing, really, maturity.
0: This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.